Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fun-filled week of Movies IMO. I'm sitting here across the table from your favorite film fags, and they are sitting across from the third remaining member of your favorite <laughs> film fags. I'm Daniel Crook. I'm Brandon Kirby. I'm Ben Empey. Today, we are discussing the Cannes Grand Prix winner, BPM, also known as BPM, parentheses beats per minute, also known as 120 beats per minute, directed also by... Also known as... Oh, yes, please. Uh, no, I'm not going to do the French. Do the French! Because I, I'd have to look it up. Why not do the French? I love French. So does Lucas Hedges uh... in the film Lady Bird. Aw. Let's name it Claude. Isn't that a little pretentious? Ah. Uh. Next week is Ladybird. I don't even know how to pronounce words in French. Let me pull Batman. it up. Uh, Batman. That, Batman. That would be... Par... Batman. Minute. 120 Batman par minute. Nice. Thank you. If uh, if our friend Joe is listening, maybe he can let me know if the pronunciation was Yeah, right. he's going to listen and be like, fuck all of you. <laughs> and frankly, that's his right when it comes to this. Uh, I took Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually took French. I don't have an excuse. I, I took French to meet guys. What can I say? I mean, if I meet guys, I mean meet really interesting middle-aged women who taught French who would sort of interject little moments of intrigue <laughs> about their life into the lesson plan that I could not respond back to in French. Wow. Um, we're talking about BPM. This is a movie directed by Robin Campillo, or Robin Campillo, or Robin Campillo, for those Americans amongst us. <laughs> if, if you're me. <laughs> I, I've said it before, this is an Agnes Varda group, not an Agnes Varda group, so I think it's fair game. Um, okay, so it's important that we talk about plot. Uh, BPM is about the ACT UP. Paris Division in the 1990s, ACT UP was an activist group that was seeking to put a spotlight on AIDS, specifically treatment for men uh, and women uh, who were suffering from HIV AIDS. Um, Yeah, they make a point that they're not caring for patients. Exactly right. And there's a great moment in the film when when one of the characters kind of starts diagnosing somebody, and then another character in the room is like, you're not a doctor, though. Like, this is not binding. It's sort of like when your therapist says, like, I'm not a doctor, but have you thought about beta blockers? <laughs> um, this movie follows an ensemble of activists. Each of them have their own fully fleshed lives. Even if we don't follow them for the duration, we mostly are following sort of the rabble-rousing radical Sean uh, and his relationship and his private life but intellectually, how Sean goes up against Thibault, who is the leader of the group or, like, the secretary of the group or somebody who prefers a little more sanitized approach um, uh, of disruption. That's all I'm going to say. Do you guys have anything to add about the plot of BPM? No, I think that's a great launching pad for, um, for folks to hear what we have to say. Great. Uh, let's talk about let's... the movie that beat... Yeah. BPM at Cannes, okay. just because we all saw it this week also, and I haven't talked to either of you about it, and I was just curious. Let's get it on the mic. Yeah, so the movie that uh, Benjamin over there is referring to is called The Square. Uh, it's directed by Ruben Ostland, uh, who made the masterpiece Force Majeure. Masterpiece, I agree. I believe we briefly touched upon yeah. uh, the masterpiece Force Majeure. Most people think it's a masterpiece. and Ben is not one of those people. Yeah. Ladies and, and, and you know what? That's Ben's right. Ben has opinions. You know, and- that's fine. We could really like dissect 
who I was and where I was when I saw this movie, which was also not in a theater, and was like week four of a really contentious film shoot that I was sleeping two hours a night on and watched it in bed on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I can't imagine a worse way to spend your time. (laughs) A worse way to spend your time. Um, Ben, why don't you why don't you take Um, us away on what you thought of the square? Give us give us the clay's disease. I liked it a lot. Um, not as much as BPM, although we will get into like nitpicks I have about BPM. But and I have less nitpicks about the square because I feel like the square is more like messed up on a conceptual level, whereas BPM is <laughs> m- more messed up on an execution level for me. Uh-huh. And it's easier to nitpick on that. Whereas and I won't even say I shouldn't say BPM is messed up because it's not. But I mean, you do go on in this episode to speak about that. I know. And that's I just, okay. I just want... That's fine. I just... I especially don't want to deter people from seeing this movie. Right. No. Everyone thing. should see BPM. And The Square. And both of them. So I think that BPM is a far superior film to The Square, just in terms of achieving a totality of its ideas. Correct. Intellectually, stylistically. I think the direction sharper in BPM as well. I just vastly yeah. prefer BPM. The Square is my favorite Palme d'Or winner ever. Wow. It, it is very exciting that that film won. There is some... And an uncompleted version. Yeah. Right. There's won. just something about... A it was mo- only four minutes longer. Than oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's, that's I knew they cut exciting, in the theatrical yeah. version. <laughs> there is just something about giving the top prize at Cannes, where, like, the wealthiest elites, mm-hmm. like, of, of the... Global conspiracy, like the global corporate conspiracy, like are all turning out to get their pictures taken, but maybe don't care so much about the art itself as much as the act of giving back to the arts, even if their everyday actions don't reflect the art that they're trying to highlight. It's just one more board to be a member of. Um, I mean, not that Can has a board of these people, but like this is very much the audience in addition to global cinephiles. There There's are just sponsors some... of the festival and people like, are going to come represent. There is just something so beautiful about a movie that not only holds up a mirror to those people, but gives them a big middle finger. Yeah. In addition to like all of the uh, like liberal white guy curators who don't see beyond the tips of their own nose. Mm-hmm. Who are... Or the tips of their own dick. Dicks. But even nice. better. E- even better. Uh, how, oh. how about that condom tug of war? That condom scene is my favorite scene, scene from the film. The anyway, scene. it's great that they have the palm door to a movie that was just like saying a big fuck you to yeah. so much of the people who were in the audience. I mean, I, I, I love the ideas behind the film. For me, it was just... It got a little too unfocused by the end. I mean, the whole Elizabeth Moss subplot is a movie in of itself. Right. It just feels like too much, and it's too long, and it's too... It becomes a little unfocused by the end. But I I, I love the ideas behind it. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. I like the stuff with Elizabeth Moss because it's tying into these ideas that he explores in Force Majeure. Pardon me. Mm-hmm. About men versus women. Just totally. sort of like the boneheaded, short-sighted... Uh, selfish ambitions of men versus the more altruistic Z dimension sight of women, just like call, being able to see their bullshit for what it is. And so much of the Elizabeth Moss and Clay's Bang relationship explores those ideas, I think, more ambitiously and a little more compellingly in Force Majeure, but I appreciated it there nonetheless. Yeah. What doesn't work for me in the square so much is the relationship he has with his daughters. 
It feels a little um, shoehorned. It, it, and the fact that the movie ends on one of the daughters' faces, um, there's an idea here about oh, them. That's right, it does. Yeah, like there's an idea about them like inheriting the same sort of like hypocrisy when it comes to a social contract mm-hmm. that their dad, who is supposed to be on the forefront of this issue, is exhibiting. Um, and in Force Majeure, he makes a very like clinical thesis. Like it's more intellectual than anything else. The terms he's speaking on, but you still have a sense of who this family is, like how each individual member of it impacts the other. Um, and you don't get that in this movie, which is frustrating because like he can both be deeply cynical to the point of inhuman while also fully fleshing out his characters. And I don't get that as much in the square. It's interesting that both films, Force Majeure and The Square, it ends on, you know, a man being totally emasculated in front of his kids. Because mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole bus thing at the end of Force Majeure where the, the mother is the one who saves the day. Mm-hmm. And then here where he goes back and tries to be the bigger man, but he ends up talking to this, like, toothless hobo for ten minutes for no reason. And the daughter's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was interesting in that respect. But yeah. Ben, did you want to say per- more on performative it? Performative goodwill. Yeah, exactly. Just that um, I saw I, I, a couple people said that, like they would trim some of the scenes. And I'm like, I wouldn't. I would reconceive the movie to be an hour 45. Right. But the scenes that are there should be as long as they are. If you trim any of it, it's, it's that much like less excruciating, which is the point. Yes. The, that's the tension in right. so many of those scenes. It's just like, I think the note, the, the note is hit too many times. The same note. I agree. Yes. It's but very repetitive. They He could have done more script work, I think, and I just re- tightened up the number of scenes, but not the length of the scenes. Correct. I think yeah. he just has so many ideas, and they never fully twist into pure cohesion for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so cut a couple threads of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe don't hit the same beats as much. Yeah. Just offer them a little more full-throatedly. Yeah. Uh, but I really like the square. Nonetheless, I mean, I, yeah. I just sort of made a big critique of it, but I really like the square, and I hope people see it. And like I said, and as you will hear, um, I'm a big fan of BPM, but I am thrilled the square beat it for the palm. Yeah. Can we bring up the post trailer? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the post trailer. Which shot of Meryl do you want to start with? Oh, oh my god. How about the them. canted angle where she's above the printing press? That's the one I was thinking of. Where she is both in power and in peril. Uh, this trailer dropped at like 9 p.m. So this is. On election night. On yeah. election night. Which is brilliant because the movie is so timely. I'm a, I'm pulling out my hair. He's pulling out his <laughs> hair, just, folks. You heard it here first. I'm just so excited for this movie. It is, and and Ben, I think you are the most excited among us. But maybe we're, yeah. we're all just so excited. I just think it's really, it's just so. Don't fix your special. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Just stop. Right? Right? Um, The first movie that Steven Spielberg signed on to after Hillary Clinton lost the election is a movie about a woman who is not believed to be able to be in charge. Let's get Dr. Freud on the (laughs) line. And it is five years since Kathleen Kennedy left him to run Lucasfilm. And he has always had a female partner for 30 years. And I think it's going to be one of the most in in the Spielberg way of 
being not about his life at all, but it is going to be a very autobiographical film. It gets me excited on, real quick, Brandon, really quickly, it seems to fit into the mold of let's put a lot of character actors in wigs and let's cast a hundred of them Mm -hmm. and they will be the Greek chorus (laughs) for our lead here, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, which is exactly why I love Lincoln so much. Like, I can't wait to watch Bob Odenkirk and Carrie Coon get into it with each other. Like, I can't wait to watch them squabble. The Post will win Best Picture. That's that's yeah. really what I think. And Meryl Streep will probably win Best Actress. It would be... The, I just love a such late... A coup if it wins both... Best Picture and Best Actress. Yeah, I'm going to stay silent on Best Actress because we got into it before we got on mic. And That's as you when I hear, was called a bully. Yeah, and, and as you will hear in the body of this episode, I don't really think I come off especially well. I think I come off a little bitchy. Uh, and You're just defending BPM, which everyone should defend BPM. Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is I'm not going to rain on Ben's parade about Meryl Streep winning Best Actress because I do it plenty in the episode. Tying Catherine Hepburn for four Academy Awards. I just... For acting. Ben, say what you want to say about Meryl. You say this is the best. Oh, I just, I am often very critical of Meryl's performances from the past 14 years. Angels in America is like the hard end of her acting and beginning to just dress up and drag and just talk. I think Meryl does some really good work just in the trailer where I feel more presence and depth of character than I feel like I've seen from her in a while. I've watched that trailer, sorry, the last thing I'll say, I've watched that trailer eight to ten times, and I <laughs> cried three of the times. Yeah. We need to, like, uh, issue a challenge, or not a challenge, but just a rubric on this podcast about our tears. Mm. Um, like, from... <laughs> performative crying. Yeah, yeah, but they're performative <laughs> crying. Like, the, the rubric is, like, light sprinkle to après moi la deluge. Yeah. <laughs> like, we really need to get some sort of scale going on here so we can really contextualize the amount of tears that were pouring for each right. of these films. I think that, let's see, so we've talked about Blade Runner, uh, Faces Places, Florida Project, Wonderstruck, and now BPM. So I've cried out of, you know, during four out of five of these movies. And mm-hmm. spoiler alert, Lady Bird's next week, and I cried on that one too. So maybe we should have done a square episode just to buck the trend, get a little more dynamic here. Anyway, so we're just going to jump right into this. Uh, were you going to say anything, Brandon? I just was going to cry about Lady Bird. <laughs> I'm just very excited for Lady Bird next week. I will probably tear up while trying to talk about it. Okay, so let's go ahead and just uh, start with a bit of a passive-aggressive brawl between mm-hmm. me and Ben. And uh, let's talk you about BPM. the future. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking into my crystal ball and uh, the post wins best picture. Okay, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) You did not like it. No, I liked it a lot. BPM is what we're talking about. I liked BPM a lot. So then what's the issue? I just knew I was going to like it the least amount. But you still like the film, and we're here to have notes on a film. Okay. Yeah, this isn't notes on a scandal, and that's what you're turning it into. (laughs) I'm I'm just on edge, and I've already done another podcast. I know you're which you're... which podcast, Ben? I did the Kid Manifesto earlier. Yeah, he's the Michael Stolberg of podcasts this year. Yeah, I'm in all of them. Nice. So, we've already outlined in the introduction what BPM is. We all loved it, and I'm hesitant to start off with Ben's complaints of the movie because I'd rather talk about what it does well. 
But I do feel like we're not going to actually be able to have any momentum in this conversation until you just go ahead and say what you didn't like about it. <laughs> because that's the only thing that's on my mind, because you've made it so apparent with your body language and general <laughs> attitude that, that you don't want to say the negative things. So I think you should just say them so then we can move forward with the rest Everyone, of the Everyone, right before we started, Daniel called me a bully. And <laughs> I'm never going to let him live it down. I feel like I'm the moderator between... There's this couple's counseling, is what's happening, <laughs> I, and I am the moderator of this distressed couple, <laughs> but it's, you, Daniel, you loved it, then you thought it was really good, so what's the issue? <laughs> it's a good point. What's the real issue here, Ben? All right, let's, All right. let's start with your critiques. Okay. Let's start there. Why let's not? start with the critiques, especially because the longer the film went on, the more I liked it. Interesting. The first 20 minutes, I was... Like, oh no, I'm not gonna like this movie. Really? Yeah. That the 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 um the, the long conversation in the meeting. Mm-hmm. I I was immediately compelled by that. Me too. I think it's beautifully shot. Well, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I don't like that it's not grounded in any specific character at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it like takes. Like, I know who the leads are because I've seen the marketing and I've seen the trailer and it winning second prize at Cannes and I know who the two romantic leads are going to be. But I... And so because of that, I'm expecting to be watching them. Like, the camera's not focused on them, but I am. And so it's jarring for me. Well, I think it's important to point out just how few close-ups there are in this film. Mm-hmm. And even when there is a medium shot on a character, it's generally dirty. You've got, like, the shoulder of the person they're talking to. There's really, You can probably count on, like, one hand the amount of close-ups in this movie. Or I mean, I'm just thinking of the one with Nathan talking about um, his former lover. Yeah. Um, but I, I, the movie definitely ends with a protagonist. Um, yeah. And it ends with a protagonist parting ways from this mortal coil and then all of these people from the group shots in the beginning and throughout the film joining around him and then fighting further for him afterwards so the film begins without a clear protagonist because this isn't one person's story the whole idea is that it's this amoeba that encompasses all these people all their livelihoods and in the first sorry brandon let me just finish this yeah yeah and in the first meeting we have Sophie, who I, is the best character in the whole movie. Like, I want Sophie to be my college roommate so badly. We can, like, smoke cigarettes on the back porch and talk <laughs> about Sartre. <laughs> but she, she holds up the newspaper clipping that they all have in their briefings about this one guy who was a founding member of the group and had stopped attending because he was succumbing to uh, AIDS and that he had died. And then they just kept on going. Right. And then the movie ends with that happening again, um, I mean, well, I imagine if there was one more group scene, like one more meeting at the end of this film, it would involve them holding up Sean's obit. Right. Anyway. Yeah, so piggybacking off of that, that's what I loved about this film is the structure of it, because it opens on a death of a member, and it ends on a death of a member. And, and like you said, so it's, it's very... Cyclical. Resistance is cyclical. Resistance never stops. Right. That's that's what I felt from it, and I, I under I, I understand the frustration of not having a fo- a focal point right at the beginning, but for me, it worked because it starts big, because it's not just about two people, and then it narrows focus to the very intimate scenes, which, um, the sex scenes between 
the two leads. We should we should talk about that. Yeah. Remarkable. That, that's a whole separate conversation. And then with his death, it re expands to being more about about more than just the two leads. No, yeah, for really... me that the structure worked, but I understand the frustration of okay, who am I focused on? Who's the lead? Yeah. It's, it's, but as you said, he throws you in. Right, he throws you into and these I'm saying it's my expectations. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we've talked about that on the mic down. on the mic before. Like when you go into a movie with a certain idea of what it's going to look like. Right. Personally, I generally sometimes need a second view afterwards yeah. just so I can accept the movie on its own terms. Right. And I feel like I do need to do that, especially because by the end I was really on board with it, but it was just like the first twenty minutes were excruciating for me. Really? Yes. So I also think yeah. the cinematography is incredibly sloppy and i kept thinking about Catherine bigelow because she does a very similar like documentary style but it's it is note perfect and the camera is always where it should be at the right time and i don't feel that it is i am not sure that this movie was trying to have a docu aesthetic as much as it was just trying to make you one more as much as it was just sloppy no, not at all. So, so who's, <laughs> but, so who's but, the bully? It again? was just sloppy. I completely but, disagree with that. How can you say that it's sloppy when, like I was saying earlier, there are so few close-ups on this. It's mostly group shots. The whole thing is designed to have every character leaning on one another, and oftentimes there's shallow focus on these shots and all their heads on. Like if in the meeting room, uh, it's like stadium seating or like uh, lecture hall seating or whatever. And we'll be looking uh, like at the back of Sean's head, and then we'll see like all these other heads in front of him that go cut from right to left on the frame, and it's a shallow focus shot, and then it ends up occupying most of the frame with their three heads. That's like a bad example, but it's not sloppy. Every every image is carefully considered. Um, I, I'm in I'm in the middle. I think it was I think it was purposely sort of haphazard, especially in the the meeting scenes because. Like you said, Daniel, I think you're meant to feel like you are a member in the room. Well, and and yeah, and also it's meant to be. It's meant to be hectic. I I thought, and also to capture the energy that they don't quite know what they're doing either. Yeah, they're still figuring it out. But that's still. I just don't. It just doesn't work for me. I felt like I was in the thick of the scrum of what was going on here. It put me there, not in the same way that Catherine Bigelow puts you there in the eye of the storm. I felt like one more member in this group on the battle lines. No, I couldn't get in. Interesting. Was it, was part of it for you the subject matter? Because it was so, it was dense, like, immediately. No. Just the filmmaking. It was, it was the filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Is that the only? Is that my only note? No, I have another note. Okay, so, I mean, I guess we did set up the structure just around Ben's notes. Yeah, you did. Yeah. You said it. Yeah, I did say it, Ben, (laughs) because you made it such a toxic atmosphere in here that I had to address it so we could move forward. Guys, drink more wine and calm down. The <laughs> the other thing is also a thing that I just don't like, uh-huh. which is a thing that happens on digital cameras. A lot of there it's an it is an aesthetic choice to have a blue production design and then make the color gradient more warm and it in no, it doesn't look like real life, and if it's like really hard for me to like emotionally connect with people that have like this like weird like yellow and like blue contrasting like shadows become very blue, let things that are lit become very yellow, and I it's just like it's I can't look at it. The first season of The Leftovers does it. This movie does it. 
Romanian New Wave Cinema does it. Yeah, I'm just saying I don't like it. Did you okay. notice it? And I think it's... I think... No, I was way too busy focusing on these characters' stories and the work they were doing to be bothered by blue shadows. Well, I'm telling... I I already told you I couldn't get into the movie. Right. For 20 minutes. What else was I going to think about? Oh, I mean, at least you're being productive with your time and sharpening your critique. I Seriously, I commend you for that. Thank you. <laughs> I think I am more attracted to warm colors. Mm-hmm. And I think it affects how I... Ironically, I blue is the warmest color. Nice. Nice promo. Um, I just... It makes it harder for me to relate to a cool color temperature. Okay. Um, <laughs> Dan, if you, you, uh, listeners, you can't see... But you there's... can't dismiss that. Um, I, you don't know I, I could say that what if, I see with my eyeballs. No, but I can say that if you're looking for... Um, depending on how you're going to light scenes in a story where there really isn't any um no there's no light at the end of the tunnel yet like the times are very in terms of a cure or forget a cure but just like um whether it's going to be inhibitors or whatever like being able to live with hiv hope is not in sight and yet they keep fighting for it which is what i i would think is actually really um i'm sorry i'm just like jumbling my words but if you're gonna have a cool light temperature I think that that would fit in a scheme that is without hope and the group themselves are building the hope inside of it. Yeah, and I'm just saying it doesn't work for me. Okay, I'm not saying that it has to work for you. I'm just saying that I I can see why they might have made that no, choice. No, I know. I get why they made the choices that are made. I just don't agree. Okay. I have a critique. Great. <laughs> um, you can't see the steam coming out of Daniel's ears. There's no steam. <laughs> um, okay. I just thought the second act lagged a bit. Define the second act for us. Because it uh, actually feels very amorphous to me, most of this plot. Like, it, like I wouldn't know what you were referring to. Yeah, I guess it's actually probably more than... Well, it's it's when the main, the lead, Sean, gets sick. It's basically the process of him dying. Okay. Mm-hmm. Felt dragged out. You know, you could have trimmed maybe ten minutes. But also, by but then, but then by the end... With the gut punch of, of of him dying and just the routine of all the members coming back to deal with his death, that ending made his illness being so prolonged worth it mm-hmm. because it emphasized the fact that it is so cyclical. It's so routine for them. They've had so many ACT UP members die that they're like, okay... Well, it, here's another one. It's Let's routine, but it's no ashes. less important, you right. know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that it certainly does take its time, and it, it's excruciating uh, at certain parts watching Sean die. Yeah. And watching someone who is so vibrant and full of life, like, lose their agency, lose their hope, lose their ability to be themselves, reminded me a lot of Amour, uh, the Michael Haneke movie, which definitely takes its time, like, two and a half hours of, like, Emmanuel Riva very slowly losing, like, <laughs> one piece of function at a time. Yeah. Um, and she's a concert pianist uh, when, when the film's... That's been right. her entire career. And so it's also just excruciating and devastating to watch the life be drained out of someone who was so full of vitality. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't so much a problem for me because Fair. the movie's already taking its time in so many ways. Like, I actually yeah. think it would be cheap to rush along the death of a protagonist mm-hmm. um, without sort of sliding the importance of 
the illness and, and, and of that place in time. Um, I just want to press like a hard reset uh, <laughs> on this. Um, <laughs> on, on this whole structure that I've set up about uh, uh, us just finding the problems. Poking holes in the, mo- in the movie. Yeah. A movie that we all really, really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. It is an important, powerful movie that will get nominated for Best Foreign Language Film so. and I think will win. I, I think it, I think it's between this and In the Fade. Oh, and, okay. And, 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 Do you think the Angelina Jolie movie has any chance? No. Really? Not even for a nomination? Maybe. Okay. But in my mind, it's between this and In the Fade. This, if Academy voters are smart and vote for what's important and powerful. And In the Fade will win wow. if they go for something like conventional and which is what they usually not not lately what? The, the departures was almost 10 years ago or at least seven and, la- years and ago. last year they chose um they were very culturally conscious because they chose um the salesman over yeah. tony erdman mm-hmm. and it was because of a cultural moment yeah. happening i would have argue... called ova was going to win Correct. until the band the, the muslim band happened i think that the muslim band certainly helped the salesman I think that they had already demonstrated that they like Farhadi's sense of story. That's probably true. I don't think Tony Erdman was ever going to win. I agree. With that. Um, really? I think it's far too. It's challenging and how, sha- and how shaggy it is. Like not even the eccentricities and the quirks because they gave Departures best foreign language, which is about like a concert cellist who can speak to the dead or whatever. <laughs> like they don't have. I don't think they have a problem with like idiosyncrasies or quirk. Right. It's more just that movie looks and feels like life at three hours long and yeah. is so digressive and shaggy. Um, and really doesn't spell out what it's about um, until the end. Mm-hmm. If you if you look at like their final exchange, mm-hmm. um, I just want to say about BPM that it's hard for me to think of another activist film in recent memory, excluding like Selma, um, that doesn't rely on the hyperbole of its own message to get across the importance of the movie's reason for existing. Sure but instead ties back the activism into the characters whose lives are on the line and then weaves into this really moving human tapestry. Um, like, it's a, this is a real living piece of history for me. Yeah. Um, this, that you get such a sense of all these characters' lives without much exposition. Like, right. well, there's, there's a lot of exposition, but it's just very carefully placed out through this thing. Yeah. And, and it, almost in an Altman-esque way, you get a good sense of pretty much every character in the room, even if you're not following them home at the end of the day. Right. And I think part of that comes from the writer-director of this, Raban Campillo. Campillo. Uh, it, he was in Act Up Paris. And the center relationship in the film is based off his real-life relationship. So, I just found, like, five minutes before we started recording, learned about that. Yeah, which... So it's 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 a very personal film for him, um, which I think is incredible. Um, the thing that I learned was on the IMDb trivia section. Nice. Which was that he also <laughs> had taken part in dressing a dead boyfriend. Mm, um, really? Yeah, in the way that uh, Nathan... Actually, Nathan doesn't do it. No, um, it's his ex and his mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Who dress him on his deathbed. You guys have seen the film more recently than I have. The way the mom reacts to Sean's death. Not <laughs> We always love bringing up Sean Dielman. But it reminds me of Sean <laughs> Dielman and the fact that 
she's just going about her, you know, she's just making sure everything's yeah. nice mm-hmm. and ready to go for the other activist members to yeah. show up. And she's just, she's just, you know, dirt, dirt, Oh dirt. my God. And you know, I mean, you're right. And well, ben, it's devastating. I was just going to say, I love it because I would be that person in a tragedy because making everything nice. I'm so good in a crisis and I just would be like, I'll make the coffee. I will make sure that he's dressed. I, I went out uh, and bought some snacks. Mm-hmm. I would be this person. There's the moment when Ellen, um, the mom in the ACT UP group. That's who, This is my favorite part of the movie. I found just to be a blissful performance. Mm-hmm. Um, when she goes over to Sean's house and she and Sean's mom exchange this. Yes. It, it's not wordless. They're talking. But they clearly share a psychic bond in this moment as mothers. That's my favorite part of the movie. Men, uh, when the moms HIV make eye contact. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's very moving. Um and I just, I love that character, period. Mm-hmm. Um, when she gets into the fight with Sean and then his mm-hmm. ex in the meeting, um, it's great. Um, I think we should talk about the sex scenes. Ah, oh, Yeah, because the sex so... scenes is when I finally, like, got into it. Not, and I don't mean that, like, in a <laughs> sexy way. You were horned They're up. They're super sexy. They are really sexy. But the first, like post-coital conversation, I was finally like, I have a way into this movie. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I really... Brandon? <laughs> I was gonna say, the sex scenes in this movie... I don't know why my... You can't see it, but my, can't hands, see it. my hands are up here. Um, Wildly gesticulating. <laughs> arms akimbo. They are revolutionary. These sex scenes are so important because this is an HIV-positive person having sex and it's yeah with just, with a with a just having sex and showing that that actually is a kind of well not kind of a very normal thing for HIV positive right. people they yeah. don't automatically become celibate unless it's by choice you can right. still have sex mm-hmm. but we yeah. we view HIV positive people not just like in the AIDS era but today as there is a stigma still unfortunately we've made a lot of prog- progress but there still is a stigma um, so seeing that on screen, a positive person having sex with a negative person with no concern of someone catching it, they're just talking and living and in a they're relationship. They're falling in love. Yeah. And they're in love and they're just talking about activism while fucking. It's great. And there's also something to be said just for the active anal sex period. It's certainly not the first time it's been portrayed in a film or an Oscar-nominated one with *Brokeback Mountain*, but it, there's something about seeing. Hold, I know, I know, I'm, I'm gonna draw, I'm gonna draw a distinction. <laughs> the fact that this isn't sanitized, that it that it lingers on these bodies, clearly finds what's happening to be sexy, almost in a simple way. Like the the act of putting it on screen is just inherently transgressive, based off like accepted social normities, but. The film presents it as sexy, as a good thing, and that it's in a mainstream film. I mean, it's France's foreign language entry. That feels revolutionary to me as well. Like, mm-hmm. we've seen gay sex in movies, even Oscar-nominated and winning movies before, but and this, has, this isn't, like, touching it with, like, a six-foot pole. And their yeah. clothes actually come off. Yeah. Brokeback Mountain... Yeah, I was gonna yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. They literally in Brookback Mountain, they're they're they what do they cut a hole in their jeans yeah. and yeah. and he called a cut a hole where his butthole is and a hole where his penis. Why don't they take their pants off? I know. It's just <laughs> they're so horny they can't take them off. <laughs> There's no time. It's like not that's the first thing you would do. <laughs> this is revolutionary because it's so normal. Yes. Yes. That's what it is. It's yeah. Like, like it's 
it's fetishized in the way that he obviously wants it to be sexy. It is very careful lighting where yeah. it's going to hit the ab or the ass. Yeah. But nice. Or the hand on the ass. But their the hand on the app. Um, connection with each other is portrayed as very normal. Yeah. And that's very nice. It's just, it's, it's also not just um, gay sex in a movie, period, but gay sex in a gay movie uh, where gay characters are not treated as like sanitized little playthings you can put in your purse and lug around with a human rights campaign sticker. I mean, that's just, like, a million different things. But, like, I feel like most gay characters are made to be um, eitherly, either, um, eitherly. Um, they're, <laughs> either they're either castrated mm-hmm. or they're either sycophants. <laughs> like, it, it's rare that, um, it's rare that a movie, it's not that it's brave to put gay sex on screen, but like Ben was saying, it's just a normal aspect of gay life. And when you're making a movie about act up activists... In the 90s, like, you have to have sex in your movie because all these people are having sex. Um, just, like, um, after most of the demonstrations that we see, they go to the club, and that's all wrapped up in the same package. Yeah. I mean, they're fighting for their lives, and their sex lives are a big part of their lives. Mm-hmm. Just like sex lives are a big part of anyone's life. I love the repetition of the club scenes. And the ending of the movie, um, when they're at the demonstration throwing Sean's ashes onto the... Oh. Um, their health, like a health insurance yeah, banquet. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the reality drops out and strobe lights start coming in and it looks like they're at the club, right. but the action is them at the protest. And just seeing the motions of their bodies like isolated through that light and sound is saying once again that there's no, there's no daylight between the activism yeah. and their everyday lives. The activism is so that they can keep living. Right. Um, and that's the payoff, I think, for all those club scenes is the finale. Yeah, yeah, there's, in like the, it might be the very first club scene, we, the, we get a shot on the dust in the club. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought it was overindulgent. I was still not sold on this movie yet. But <laughs> it is repeated at the end, and I eventually... Not eventually. The second time it happens, I was like, this is actually a really profound image of Dust dancing in the club, and it is talking, showing how normal everyone is. We are all the same, and we are all, in a way, Dust. I agree. You know? I I completely agree. Um, I saw the Dust, and I swear to God, I'm not trying to, like, poke you in the eye, but when I saw the shot of the dust in the club, I was like, I think Ben probably wrote this down. There's a problem with the movie. (laughs) But there's a couple, there's a few moments, not just in the club, where we focus on the ephemera in a Mm -hmm. scene, and then at the end, Sean's ashes become that dust. Yes. It's exactly, I mean, it's proving the point that we we are all ephemeral. We are here for a short time. And yet, it's beautiful. I mean, like the shot of the dust dancing through the lights is, is sort of profound and moving. And then to tie that into life itself by the end with Sean's body. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really stunning, moving. I think. For those who haven't seen it, I don't know if either of you have seen it. I mean, I it. think we've... If you haven't... I gotta hope you've seen it if you've gotten this far in. <laughs> well, no, 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 sorry. Um, I'm talking about not BPM. His, his, his um, film before BPM, Eastern Boys. Oh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I would recommend it. It's not as good... 
Um, but it is quite good. And it... I think, for me, watching that before seeing this film... There's a wine pour, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, seeing Eastern Boys before this film was helpful mm-hmm. for me to get into his filmmaking style. And, and Ben, I think, maybe having watched that before BPM, this style would have been less jarring. So what are some of the similarities? So, for example, Eastern Boys starts with this guy cruising, this, this younger guy invites him over, but then the younger guy brings, like, all of his friends, and they just turn up. They're very intimidating, and they turn up really loud, like, house music and there's this prolonged sequence of the house music and they're all dancing and drinking and they're they're robbing him right in front of him but he's like doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know how to react and he's rich so he also doesn't really care because he likes the boy but it's 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 this weird thing where you're like wait it's like 20 30 minutes into the film and you're like oh is this is this the whole movie Mm. but then that sequence ends and then the plot Mm. The, you realize this, the central romance and relationship begins and the rest of the movie unfolds. Mm. So, which is similar to BPM in that it opens on this prolonged meeting where you're like, is the whole movie the meeting? And then, and then it gets into the central relationship. Yeah. So guess, it's, it's a similar structure, kind of. Not to bounce back to the beginning, but what I really find fascinating about that opening of the film, and also any time they're in those group meetings, is hearing these different strains of thought within what we assume... Like, any time we think of an organization, it's monolithic. Mm-hmm. You know? You, you have a core set of beliefs. That's what you fight for. You know? You assume right. that there's unilateral agreement. But there's not. Um, like changes made through people debating, p- people with shared common values debating about the best, how to put the best foot forward. And just to hear all those different strains of argument in the beginning, and not just that, but like who's engaging, who's not engaging, who are the leaders, how does everyone in this room, um, in sort of like a social totem pole, like where does everyone fall on this? Like, it, it sets up all of the characters for the film, but it's also just sort of like intellectually stimulating, I think, to hear all the different arguments for how to attack a problem where, you know, the clock is ticking. Time is running out even when the film begins. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I don't know, just the, the, the sausage making of social progress is fascinating to watch, I think. Yeah. Um, but, and, and like I said, I think I said um, the last episode, but the class, which Ken Pio co-wrote, is pretty mm-hmm. much focused on those ideas as well. It's just a high school classroom instead of, um, you know, an activist uh, weekly meeting or whatever. And the workshop coming up, which he didn't direct, but he wrote, but it's the same oh, duo yeah. as the class. Yeah, yeah. Um, deals with a similar thing, like moral. I also think it's issues. just really great direction uh, in the way that we learn. It's great writing and great directing how we learn the rules of this organization. And how that operates. So, like, how does someone speak? When do you know your time is up? There's no debate in the hallway. And so that later in the movie, when Sean and uh, Thibault and uh, Sophie, maybe, are all in the hallway, like, having a squabble, that's when you know that ACT UP is, like, splitting apart on some level. Like, it's under duress. This is a tension point for the group. And it's all set up in the beginning. Um, Oh, um, and, and just, like, the sound of snaps and hisses. 
like by the end of the movie, I had like a very Pavlovian response to that, where I would hear snaps and I would start crying, um, <laughs> which actually happened. <laughs> I wept oh, wow. through this movie. We have to really? talk about the tears. Yeah. So did Ben, did you? I mean, I was very emotional at the end. Interesting. It's probably because I didn't see it on the big screen. Mm. I will eventually. Brandon's in the industry, folks. So, I, you know, I had a screener at home, but... So I didn't cry. Probably Cuddle be- up with the dog and a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, the cat. Um, so I didn't cry, but I think it, I'm, I'm assuming if I had seen it in a theater with one it's of It's pretty you, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I would have cried. When what? the sane runs with blood. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. It's, it's pretty, pretty overwhelming. overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the great images in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and shit. Okay, so now I have two thoughts. Um, Tell them both. The first is that we're talking. Express them. <laughs> Express yourself. Well, first I'll say the other great thing about the opening is the Rashomon style editing, um, because actually the cold open of the film, the prologue of the film, whatever you want to call it, is the act up activist backstage and like in the wings about mm-hmm. to disrupt some like shareholders stakeholders meeting or whatever mm-hmm. um and then as soon as they go out there we cut to like bpm the title card mm-hmm. and then we watch the autopsy yeah. like relived in that opening meeting um and i i just loved i love the editing of it i love the energy of it i love the re-exploring of this one scene through so many different vantage points mm-hmm. which going back to what i was saying earlier is what i find so thrilling about the opening scene just like all these different veins of strategy for how to best achieve your goal mm-hmm. and then the other thing i wanted to say is on the topic of crying which is that the moment that made me cry the most in this movie was not the ending although i was like shaking crying at the ending but when Nathan gives Sean the hand job in the hospital bed, which is yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, I mean, just for Sean, like knowing that he does still have a body, that he can yeah. still experience joy and he can still experience love because he's worried about the distancing between him and Nathan and that right. it's his fault because he's the one with the disease. But it's very much, I think, the payoff for the sex positivity that the film has already set up Yeah, that... I mean, it's a it's the most moving hand job I've ever seen in a movie. Yes, and that's yeah. a like inherently silly thing to say, yeah. but only because we're conditioned to that act, right? Not being taken seriously when in fact it is a tremendous gesture of love and commitment and companionship at this moment. I love a hospital bed hand job. Me too. I it think... reminds me of the film Indignation. Oh my god! It's not even the first one. I didn't think about that. I forgot. I love that film, and I love Logan Lerman. (laughs) Brandon, what what, was that like? um, That was on your top ten last year, wasn't it? Oh, fuck yeah! I love that movie. I thought it was good. I would. I put that in the top twenty. Yeah, I think it was in my top twenty. Not top ten. I didn't, but not only because I'm a bad person. When I saw that movie, and I walked out of the landmark theater. I thought it was going to be an Oscar contender. I was certain right. of it, but it was still very, very it's early. It had good Sundance buzz. Yeah, but it was Everybody's still very, talking very about the early. Tracy Letts tête-à-tête. Yeah. That, what, like, 15-minute yeah. scene or whatever? It's a great scene. It moves, baby. I mean, it does not feel 15 minutes long. It's yeah. blinking, you miss it. Yeah. Um, Back to the hand job. Yes? I just want to say... Um, it didn't hit me in the moment of the scene, but, like, at some point... At, by after Sean gets home, before he dies, it like I was like, oh, that's the last time they're ever gonna have sex in this movie, and that was like really sad. Yeah, I, I think there's an undercurrent of sadness to it as well mm-hmm. because of the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Okay, so what is there in the middle of the movie that we liked, <laughs> now that we've talked about the beginning and the end? Well, I just want to go back to the first sex scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and say... No, no arguments for me on that one. What, I, what, like, really helped me get into this movie is that we turn into a, this very la, subjective dreamscape as they're talking about past loves. And Comes that's, out of nowhere. And that's just, like so much why I go to movies and that I was like I was like I was just able to it's such give uh, myself to it inventive direction as well mm-hmm. for former lovers I mean one he was the guy who gave Sean HIV but right. nonetheless just appearing in the scene yes. like popping out from behind his yes. ass and yeah. you think that he and Nathan are about to have seconds yes but it's not it's a flashback scene mm-hmm. yeah and Sean's body is in the exact same position as present day and in the flashback. It's, it is beautiful. brilliant direction. It's beautifully done. I agree. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so um, I think that we should probably mention, we keep talking about Sean, we should mention how great the actor is who plays Sean. So this yeah. is, of course, Cola Scola. Uh, turning in <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, Noel Perez Bisca. Um, God damn it! I've always I listen to podcasts and I hear people like not say the names yeah. right, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this is the most devastating thing. Oh for wow, me. that is a name. Yeah, that is a name. It's Noel Perez uh, Biscayart. He's hot. Did y'all really hot. see the thing? I he's I amazing. By the way, that, that's the whole reason I brought it up. I'll be surprised if I see. I mean, I'll see better performances. It's not my favorite performance, but he really runs the gamut and gives a you know from. Happy to sad. Yeah. And gives you a fully fleshed idea of who this person is. He is so present. Yeah. And devastating and hilarious and joyful. His face on the poster is just... I love that moment. I love that scene. With their cheering. In the parade. The cheering. There's so much pink and fun mm-hmm. and life. And then later, there's the scene where Tebold, uh, a year later, or maybe two... I can't remember. Maybe two years later at this point. They're discussing strategy for the Pride Parade. And he suggests, like... Big speakers, like loud music, which is what Sean was basically arguing for the year before. Right. And that's when Sean walks out of the group and says that you've completely lost it. You've lost the plot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so actually, I think more of that um, when I think of the pride than the pride scenes than the amazing like pom-poms. That scene's great too. But that it then comes full circle like that. Or not full circle, like 180 degrees on a line. Yeah, correct. Um, You've reminded me of one of my other favorite parts of this movie. Which has nothing to do with what you were saying, but I'm gonna say it now. Yes. Um, when Tybalt visits Sean in the hospital mm. and says, "We don't like each other, but we're friends." That didn't make you think of me. That did. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines in the movie. That's it's, great. It's a great. It's a great sentiment. And I think it it really speaks to, like a family relationship and like a really tight-knit working relationship where you really aren't choosing to be in each other's lives but you still love them Mm -hmm. even though you have many differences i have a favorite line from the film oh nice snapping um sean says it it's in the trailer help me out uh when i i haven't even seen the trailer when I've I, seen it once. When I got the disease, Sean says, when I got the disease, I've, I'm living life louder. I'm living... Oh, but, I'm he, but he's it. saying it all in jest in the movie. 
He talks about yes? he talks about how contracting HIV made him like see life in a more positive light, and, and like made him appreciate the grain of life that much more. Mm-hmm. And maybe he does mean it, but as soon as and it's a great shot. Oh, I think when he's it, looking out the train window, and we this reminds me yeah. a lot of that same ephemeral idea of the dust in the club. We have the reflections of the landscape outside the train mm-hmm. reflected against his face, and mm-hmm. so almost in like the in cold blood way when the tears are streaming down. Perry's face, I guess. Um, the all these like trees and shit are just street are like barreling across Sean's face. But then he looks back to his friends in the subway and is like, "Not." Oh, because well, it's yeah. so earnest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. He does. Yeah, I forgot about that part of it. Yeah, I no, like it. I do too. <laughs> I mean, I was so on board, and then and then when he was like, he was like "Psych," I was like, <laughs> "Me too." Like, <laughs> I'm also right. deeply cynical. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah, I like that moment. Um, do we want to talk about other activism films? Which is our theme? Oh, yes, activism films. Activism films. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I, don't know, I, I don't know if I was done talking about BPM, but we have reached... Uh, well, like, you know, I don't know. I'm just trying to keep us on time. Is If there's more to say hey, about... Hey, leading B- this episode? Okay, enough. All right, take, the, take it away. <laughs> Well, now I don't know where to go with this. Uh, <laughs> do we what? Do we do we want to keep talking I, about BPM? We can segue away from it. It's fine. I, what I like about BPM as an activism film, as I've mm-hmm. already said, is it clearly demonstrates why the work they do impacts the lives they lead. It's not yeah. just a matter of a movie presenting people who have picket signs and megaphones and wants you to admire them for the sheer act of civil disobedience, which obviously is very admirable, but BPM ties it, like on a molecular, literally on a molecular level, down to how it impacts these characters' lives. That is what I look for in a good activist movie. Yeah, and that's why in a movie like Harlan County, USA, which is a documentary, um, I love so much the wives of the miners oh. and how they become because they're the ones who are hit the hardest. They're the ones yeah. who are staying home with the kids. So when their husbands aren't working. They're really the ones who are getting hit with the brunt of this additional new labor. Right. And so I love the way that they sort of take control of the narrative and end up being the best part of the movie um, and the most vocal advocates yeah. uh, for the coal miners. Harlan County USA is my favorite documentary. So I watched it recently to prepare for this because um, I knew Daniel would bring it up because he loves it. And yeah, it's incredible. It blew my mind. Those... Talk about access. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean... She didn't know, Barbara didn't know going in that this is what would happen. Right. And that's what happened. Yeah. And we're like, holy fucking shit. Yeah. And she would never have shot it if she wasn't able to ingratiate herself and build trust with this very insular community that is distrustworthy of outsiders. Yeah. Certainly someone from Hollywood, because that's like a power player. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying Barbara Koppel. She certainly was not. Right. Like, Hollywood establishment in 1976 or whenever this movie was shot. But, like, someone with a camera, it's going to be viewed with suspicion. How are you going to turn this against me? And the way that she's able to build trust with those people is, those people, is astounding. And it's great how she's part observer and part involves herself yeah. in what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like when she talks to that one truck driver who keeps, who keeps driving by and like being threatening. Yeah. She she confronts him. One of the best shots in film ever is when she is on the picket lines in the middle of the night with her camera out and she's got the light on top of it and mm-hmm. the truck driver drives past with a gun in his hand. Yes. 
not knowing that he was going to be filmed, not knowing that right. he had anything to lose at that moment. Yeah. And then you hear her yell, don't shoot. Mm-hmm. And it registers on his face that he's been caught in the act and then he drives away. It's one of the most powerful um, images in a documentary otherwise I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and really speaks to how the reason why activism matters, the reasons why social disobedience matters, it's not people who are entitled. It's not people looking for a handout. It's not people who can't pull themselves up, pull themselves up with the bootstraps or just like get their shit together. Mm-hmm. Like it's people who are being fucked over. Mm-hmm. And this is the clearest way to get people's attention is through disruption, through yeah. interrupting the means of production. Um, America needs to bring unions back, baby. I mean, you can, there is a clear line between the despair, like of income inequality yep. and union busting. Mm-hmm. Like union memberships go down, income inequality goes up. Mm-hmm. This is a clear line. And no one talks about it. No one fucking talks about it. <laughs> it's insane. Lady, so, people talk about it. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I'm, I know people talk about it. Our our elected officials oh, do not talk sure. about it. Democrats don't talk about it, and Republicans, they do talk about it, but they talk about busting the unions. Yeah. I gotta say, I tweeted this because I I retweeted something, but these. Uh, Races in Virginia and New Jersey yesterday. These are the first governor's races since Uh, Scott Walker, who we all know um, famously um, disbanded, or not disbanded, but he basically erased um, collective bargaining Mm -hmm. uh, from Wisconsin union rights, which basically, you know, cripples them from the knee down. They have no seat at the table anymore. Um, There was a recall election. He was reelected. It's... He's the worst person on the face of the planet. Yeah. But he's the head of the Republican Governors Association or whatever. So these two races are on him. And he lost. Big baby. Fuck Scott Walker, man. Yeah. Woo. He looks like um, like if you mix like the Antichrist with Ronald McDonald. Ew. That's what you would get with Scott Walker. That's wild. That's disturbing. He has a long face. He's got a stupid mop of black hair. And his smile is very creepy in a clown-like way. Wow. What were you going to say? Benjamin? I just think it's really nice that uh, normally we would have recorded this episode earlier in the week, and it's fate that we are doing an activism uh, episode, and we ended up doing it after Tuesday. Yes. Pretty cool. Yeah, I'm very happy by this. That we get to talk about that. And there was that whole Twitter meme going on about, like, me on Election Day 2016 and me on Election Day 2017, and I couldn't help myself because, well, I, like, I participated, and then I said, like, I'm actually pretty fired up. Um, like, the idea was, like, the first photo, you're happy. The second photo is you're really, like, sad and despondent. Or, or, well, then event- first photo, you're normal. Second photo, you're, like, ready to fucking rage. Yeah. Fucking kill everyone. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I, don't, I bring this up because I think Ben probably wants to talk about Norma Ray. I do. But I did a before photo of Sally Field and Smokey oh, in the yeah, band yeah. looking glam, looking mm, out the window. Nah. And then the second was that infamous Sally's got the sign over her head. Union! Union. Union. Woo! I watched that movie on my fucking laptop, but I, you know, sorry. But that scene, man, I was just crying into my, you know, keyboard. I mean, Norma Rae is one of the greatest movies ever made. It is so special and so good in that scene and she is so good. Did she win? And yes. She won, won, right? won her first won. Oscar. Woo! Thank that God. That movie was also made um, after Harlan County USA mm-hmm. and Harlan County won the documentary Oscar, Correct. I believe. Yes. So I would not be surprised 
if they took a lot of inspiration. I, from that. I would imagine. Yeah, is, so. is that, that must be confirmed somewhere in some yeah. interview? I'm sure that it was largely influenced by. Because very similar. And by the things. way, Norma Ray is another movie that shows how, when someone puts their life on the line, what mm-hmm. is that life that they're risking? Right. And there's that amazing scene at the end of Norma Ray, like when she wakes up her two kids in the middle of the night, and it's like, look, you're gonna hear some talk at school. Mm-hmm. People are gonna be talking some shit about your mama. And I just want you to know that I love you, that I'm fighting for you, and don't listen to it. Yeah. it is I love that. Gorgeous. Yeah. Can I tell you my favorite scene, apart from when she stands up and holds yeah. up the union sign? Um, it's when, um, who plays her husband? It's Bo Bridges. Oh, it's, yeah, Bo Bridges. Yeah. And when he's being like, why aren't you cooking me dinner? Why are you stop with this union stuff? And then she's like, <laughs> with that she's big like, city Jew. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, oh, you want me to cook dinner? And she's oh, like, yeah. She's like slicing cabbage and like, oh my god, oh, you want me to do laundry? And she's like squirting tie. Brandon, Brandon. I was, I was alive. Brandon, do you know what that scene reminds me of? Me? The part in Killing of a Sacred Deer when Nicole Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, when she no, says to Colin Farrell about like this is all your fault, yeah. like why don't you do something about it? And then he's and then he starts like glasses. throwing the kitchen around and it's like, do you have any pubic hair? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my god, when Colin Farrell says, do you have any pubic hair? <laughs> and Killing of a Sacred Deer, that is the most, that is the greatest comedy of the year. I, I love well, that movie. Girl, it's wow. between Girls Trip and The Killing of a Sacred Deer for me. Those are my two wow. favorite comedies of the year. Well, <laughs> nothing is as funny. Ladybird. That is a comedy. Okay. I laughed hard. That's yeah. A comedy. Yeah. Okay. That's that's fair. Yeah. Lady, Ladybird is a better movie than both of those movies. Ladies and Thank gentlemen, our episode next week will be about Ladybird. Yeah. <laughs> and it will be a, it'll be fun for me to compare because the two things that make me cry the most are people working through collective action to make life better for one another, and young women learning to learn themselves, and. We'll see which one I cried more on. That's all. I watched some selected scenes from Norma Ray at 1 a.m. last night after I saw BPM and just like scanned through a little. And it's just the most accessible movie to watch, which, and it's just so easy, and but it's still like glorious yeah. and beautiful. It doesn't sand off any of the rough edges no. of that environment or the issue of labor union but it's just like it is a classic hero's journey she is not interested in doing this at all she just knows that she has to and that's everyone's favorite story Mm -hmm. and it's just so it's a story of resilience it's a story of a woman awakening Mm -hmm. within herself she's certainly not complacent at the beginning of the movie right but she really learns how to fight she's dieting that's the that's right that's her first line that's right dieting oh yeah (laughs) and then she watches her mom Lose her hearing for a yeah. while. How, yes. How oh. about the sound of the textile machines in Norma Ray? Oh my god, so aggressive. So aggressive. I think... And oppressive. That and first part oppressive. when her mom can't hear, and she grabs her mom and runs... To the break room. To yes. the break room. Yes. You are just like, this, this woman, she is exhausted already. Yeah. But she's going to do what she has to do to protect the ones that she loves. Yeah. It's all on her back. She's mm-hmm. carrying the physical and emotional labor mm-hmm. of the family. Can we talk about the very beautiful, bittersweet ending? Because you know she has fallen in love with the big city Jew. <coughs> the big city Jew, played by who? 
Played by Jennifer Aniston's dad on Friends. I'll never forget <laughs> Roger Ebert's name. review of this film. I think he gave it... He didn't give it... He Hold on. The role is played by... Oh, Ron Liebman. Mm. So, Roger Ebert's critique of this film was... I can't find his review, but... Um, well, if only the, the male lead was played by a more, you know... A better actor, basically, is what he said. And anyway, anyway, I think I'm, he's, I think he's great. I think he's, I think he's great. Oh, Roger Ebert, sweaty through the whole movie. Oh, it's great. There's such like a room. sense of place with the heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think like it's great. Hot and thick. Yep. I don't agree with Roger just, Ebert, but I don't agree with the late Roger Ebert, my idol, Roger Ebert, yeah. who gave Knowing four stars. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's nothing better than a bad Ebert take. Mm-hmm. Oh, they are the best. Anyway, um... Especially when he doubles down on the bad take 20 years later, like with Blue Velvet. <laughs> yeah. He's like, this is still bad. I watched it again. It sucks. Um... Your movie sucks. What was Best I... book title was it? Your movie sucks. Um, no, but the very bittersweet ending where she wants to be with him and she knows that, you know, she deserves to be with him, but they can't be together. Mm-hmm. And he leaves town. And then and we, she's in that and, town, and left that's the last with both shot. bridges, and that's the last shot. But the hey, roll. but she's gonna continue to work hard on behalf of the union. Yeah, he has passed the baton. Yeah, she's she doesn't have the man, but that's not the only thing that defines her. I mean, right. she she doesn't have him as a anyone to lean on as a crutch anymore. She right. is the sole person in charge. Obviously, we know if you studied your American history, Norma Ray loses, which I is. Well, what did I just say about oh. labor union membership declining right. and income inequality going yeah. up? Ah. That's the thing about like Harlan County, USA for me as well. Like They're very rousing in their um, political activism right. in the way that people, like everyday people, are able to change their circumstances in extraordinary ways. I probably shouldn't even go down this. And then all these people went and voted for Donald Trump. Exactly. I mean, all Har- of these people. Harlan County um, is Trump County. Right. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't really want to talk further at length about that. Because um, I love these people so much. Yeah, I know. And I mean... Ah, uh, yeah. <sighs> it's hard. Ah! Uh, so... They were duped. I, they uh, shouldn't have done it. They were duped. You can't blame but, them for being duped. I mean, we can't. I can, can blame them for being racist. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> we can blame... Or sexist. I can still blame them, but... If there's someone... I would highly sure. recommend if you guys haven't already watching Fargo season two. I have. I love Fargo season. Two. And the reason why, and I think I've talked to you about this before, Ben, is the grand narrative of that season is about the bait and switch of small town American values and a corporate idea yeah. of what those are that end up just putting more money in their pockets. Mm-hmm. It's basically about how we went from it takes a village to it's just me. Mm-hmm. And how corporate America is the one that used that sleight of hand in order to pull it off. That's the entire story of Fargo season two. And I Did actually, you guys see... And, and it has a lot to do with this conversation we're having. Um, it's the middle piece. There was an article of David Simon was quoted as like, I can't believe in my lifetime I have seen libertarianism taken seriously. Where 30 years ago, no one ever would have taken that seriously. Yeah, because we used to trust the government. Mm-hmm. It, the Republicans have been so good at saying, the Democrats want government to solve all your problems. Government, this monolithic, oppressive, big brother type right. figure. Whereas we used to look at the government as this, like, 
a system of elected officials. Right. Who and what's funny, who do things society. for us. And what's funny is, like, if you look at Trump voters and how many of them support the Medicaid they're on, the Medicare they're on, the Social Security they're on, the approval numbers are through the roof. Mm-hmm. And those are government programs that exist to help them. The Republicans have just been so good at redefining what the word government means in mm-hmm. this country. And now, mm-hmm. and again, it's going back to Fargo season two. It's like the Republicans are the party of corporations, of course. I mean, we're not going to talk about the Democrats. Uh, I, I'm a bit, I'm a partisan. You know, I love the Democratic Party for all its faults. But um, anyway, just uh, what didn't plan on making the points. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. No problem. Um, Can we talk about the post trailer? Oh, I'm just kidding. We don't have to. We already talked about the post trailer. What are you talking about? We're going to talk about it in the intro. We already talked about the post trailer. We're cutting this out. No, we're not. Yeah. Probably. Well, you're the one cutting it. So if you want to, <laughs> the scissors are yours. There are like there are like two conversations in the Wonderstruck episode where we're like we're going to cut this out, and I didn't cut them. Out. I well, I, I don't listen to were... these anymore, but I, I just sort of scrub through them to make sure that the audio is okay. I thought you were going to cut um, out the window closing, but then I, I I found the nuances of bringing in Ida, and I thought it was very very inspired. I scrubbed to that point, which is the whole reason I brought it up, and yeah, it's fine. Anyway, what do you want to bring up, Ben? Oh. Uh, in BPM, Nathan's ears. I love oh, his ears. They're awesome. Russell Tovey ears. They're not. That's exactly I mean, right. But they're they're pointier. There's like Russell Tovey meets. There's like an elven Hugo quality Weaving. to it. They, there is but an they elven stick out. quality. There's meets an elven, Legolas. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I just loved it. Loved those ears. Mm, same. So, you know, I oftentimes forget that we're recording in the microphones for other people to listen to this, and so I just think that Ben and I should probably make up. On the microphone. I harbor no ill will. Well, I, I don't know if I believe you. Uh, but I. So you always think that I'm like angrier at you than I am? Yeah. Well, it's just, well, we don't need to talk about that on mic. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited for the movies IMO spinoff Daniel and Ben fight. <laughs> but that's also just movies IMO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good laugh, Brandon. Ha ha! I'm practicing my Tom Cruise laugh. It sounds like oh. ha ha ha. It sounds oh. like a Mitt Romney laugh. Oh, wow. Ew. Um, anyway, the whole I didn't bring that up so Ben and I could like make up on the air. Um, I mean, by by which I mean it wasn't so Ben and I could get into like a nuanced discussion of why we need to make up on the air. But as much to say that Ben celebrated a birthday recently. Uh, he did. Um, and Brandon and I pitched him to get you a gift. Oh my god! I have it. My, I'm holding it right now. Hell yeah! I think you're gonna like it. Oh my god! So th- you know, this is not a visual medium, so Ben will have to no. describe on the mic what we got him. Yeah, correct. Um, but oh, here I'm excited uh, and I'm embarrassed. Here you go. <gasps> oh my god! It's one of the girls on top shirts. It's Agnes Varda, which I wanted to buy, and I'm so excited. Oh my god. I'm gonna have to take a picture and post it on our social media. So the plan was we were all gonna just <laughs> pose together. Oh. Brandon and I have had a separate text going on about this. So I was supposed to buy the Greta Gerwig one in time for this, but I didn't. And you didn't. <laughs> I am currently sporting my Isabelle Pear tee. Okay, we'll do it next week. No, no, no. I brought my Mia Hansen love tee oh. for Brandon to wear in the shot. Okay. We came prepared. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Happy birthday, Ben. Happy birthday, Ben. We love and value you. Thank you so much. Your company is 
a treasure. Something. <laughs> I like you, Ben. Jesus. 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 <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is a religious podcast. We say Jesus a lot. We do. In short, BPM is a moving exploration of an organization. <laughs> I was going to go on and then I decided I didn't want to. Yeah, uh, don't I, listen to my personal problems because they are personal hey, problems. Hey, they're personal problems, but they're valid. The film is allowed to be critiqued. I have developed a belief in what I think a movie should be, and it, it rubs up against some things. Yeah, so when a film specifically isn't... me, but I think that it's your right to have those opinions, and I hope that you don't think that I am dismissive of them just because I think that they're wrong in every way. I mean, I think that bef- like when I say them, but otherwise, but not... no. Not every film is directed by Todd Haynes. No, and I I love a Catherine Bigelow, which has a lot of similar... I mean, not Detroit. Not Detroit. Okay, sorry, I was grimacing over Detroit. No, fuck about? Detroit. <laughs> but her two previous masterpieces, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Correct. My dream is a Zodiac Zero Dark Thirty double feature. Oh, wow. Just like Ooh. a six-hour slow drip, drip <laughs> of journalism. Sounds great. Leading really? to catching or not catching a killer. Anyway, Daniel, close this, close this off. Okay, well, in close short, this out. in short, um, in lieu of trying to have a tidy summation of why you should see BPM, I think we've made a number of arguments. There's been some discussion, there's been some fun, there's been some tears, um, there's been some empathy. Um, you know, there's just been a lot of talk. So this has been Movies IMO. I'm Daniel Crook. Um... You can find me on Twitter at Daniel Crook with three O's. I'm Ben Empey. You can find me on Twitter at Real Todd Haynes. And my name is Brandon Kirby, and my Twitter handle is at BK Kirby. I would implore you to rate, review, and subscribe to Movies IMO on the iTunes Store. I believe we're also on Stitcher. Mm-hmm. And Spotify, Google Play. Google Play. I don't think we were ever approved for Spotify because they're weird about podcasts. Because it's not really a podcast app. Oh uh, yeah, that's always where I go when iTunes is malfunctioning, yeah. or like the, the podcast app is malfunctioning for me. I think we Google Play. Act. I just downloaded so I could watch the beaches of that nest. Oh, I think we have to act like be popular to be on Spotify. <laughs> like we have to act like we think that we are popular no or... i think like spotify mm-hmm. we have 100,000 <laughs> listeners per episode yeah add us I to think... your that's thing. a soft estimate no one actually knows how many listeners we have because the numbers are just all over the place they're so high they're there's awesome. so there's so many we cannot track them carefully enough it's true please also follow us on twitter.com at movies imo the account is mostly me retweeting Ben's tweets. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I will just say what I said while I'm editing an episode because I'm drawn to the idiot dick things that I say. Idiotic? Idiotic. <laughs> idiotic. It's so <laughs> cute that you didn't say idiotic right. Of all the words to not say right. The winner is Jane Fonda. Thank you. Thank you very much, members of the Academy, and thank all of you who applauded. There's a great deal to say, and I'm not going to say it tonight. I would just like to really thank you very much.